Uh, Last time we heard from Jonah, uh, last week we uh, left him when he was on the run from the call of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord, as it says for us there at the beginning of this chapter. uh, As you remember, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah and recruited him to bring that word, the word of Yahweh, to a people, the people of Nineveh, people who were, uh, that in his mind, didn't deserve that type of word, of course. It did not sit well with him. Didn't sit well with Jonah at all. So much so, in fact, that as we saw last time, and I'm sure you're familiar with the story, Jonah decides to run away. Instead of surrendering to the call of God that was clearly and demonstrably on his life, he runs in the exact opposite direction. That's, of course, the summary of the first three verses of the book, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Again, he's going in the exact opposite direction from where God had appointed him to go. And up to this point, you might uh, I imagine Jonah thinking that everything is just going swimmingly right now. Everything for Jonah is just going according to plan. He just so happens to go to the port where it just so happens where they have a ship that's heading to exactly the place where he wants to go. As far away as possible from where God was. He's going to Joppa. Joppa, as mentioned last time, was a fairly popular port city on the coast of the Mediterranean um, in, in, in those days. And it, it, it wasn't perhaps the most uh, popular uh, sort of port city, but it was still a very significant commercial outpost, uh, outpost, so to speak. And that's why there was always these ships going in and out, going in and out of Joppa. And he just, again, quote unquote, just so happens... To find transports to the furthest, perhaps, destination possible. Tarshish. That's what it represented. It represented, in those days, what would be referred to as the edge of the world. If the scholars are right, this reference to Tarshish is is a reference to a city that was on the outskirts of the kingdom of Phoenicia in what would be modern day Spain. Right at the the mouth of the Mediterranean where the Atlantic and Mediterranean meet. So this makes Jonah's target destination to get away from God roughly 2,500 miles away from his corner of the world where he's from. You can see, you can see Jonah's motivation. He's putting as much distance as possible, as much distance as he can manage between himself and the call of the Lord. And I imagine as he goes down to this poor city, I imagine he considers himself among the most very lucky. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. What are the chances? But actually, I'd say his chances were pretty high. Considering that it wasn't luck. It wasn't luck that Jonah found this boat. It was the Lord. And that might sound like 
an odd thing to say, but I would like to assert that actually nothing in this story happens by chance. Nothing in this story happens by accident. And in fact, even in the midst of what we're going to see this morning, what we're going to see is that even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, even in the midst of his running away from the Lord, there are so many, there's a number of elements and details that remind us of who it is that really was in control the entire time. And spoiler alert, it's not Jonah. <laughs> He wasn't in control, even as he thought that he was. And I think that's what this story, especially this first chapter, shows us. That ours is a God who governs everything, the events of history and everything within it, in order that his purposes might be fulfilled. He oversees and he orchestrates Every single facet of our days to bring about his desired ends, not necessarily ours. There's a great theologian from the 20th century and he says this, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And indeed, I think we can see that clearly displayed here in this first chapter of Jonah specifically. That over and over again, you can see God claiming, that's mine. That belongs to me. Even Jonah's plans weren't his own. This is prevalent. Especially here. And I think we're going to see this demonstrated in three ways this morning. I hope you'll stay with me and track along as we go through this uh, continuing story about the mercy of God that never stops. And we could even say it's this merciful control of God that never ceases to give up on us, even those who run away from him. First of all, first uh, sort of element of control that I want you to see this morning is, is that God controls, uh, has, excuse me, God's control over forecasts. God's control over forecasts. So Jonah boards this boat. It's going to Tarshish. It's bound for that city far, far away. But even so, it does not take long for Jonah's well-laid plans to be entirely upset and thrown into jeopardy. Because you have to see this distinction that happens. As Jonah is receiving this call, he decides to run away. And then suddenly in verse 4, after all of these plans have seemingly worked out, notice what occurs. The Lord interjects himself. Into the situation. Notice it says verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. God suddenly sends a horrendous storm. Right in the midst of that Tarshish bound boat. And that path that it had laid for itself. And in fact this tempest is so intense. That the little boat that is sailing on the Mediterranean is on the brink of being turned into driftwood. It's, It's threatening to break up. But I love this little verse because it is packed with so much meaning for us. And sometimes perhaps we don't see it. Because while we might, and I'm sure you would agree with me, that you would casually say that yes, God is in control of the weather. The picture that's painted for us here is 
far more vivid than just just assenting to that fact. And in fact, what it's trying to sort of paint for us, this little verse is painting for us, is that God is able to manipulate all the forecasts, similar to how we might manipulate food, if you will. Think about think about a chef in the kitchen. They take all these ingredients, vegetables or meats or whatever seasonings. And they, they put them all together somehow. It's magic to me because I'm not good in the kitchen. But they put it all together. They throw it all, th- all into one thing. And they make something that's classified as fine dining. And you pay hundreds of dollars for it. When you could just go out in the yard and, and pick some of the things yourself. It's just uh, trying to highlight the fact that food is manipulatable by us. We are able to control it. We are able to toss it around however we will. And that's a silly illustration perhaps. But the same level of control a chef has in his kitchen, God has in his creation. And that's what that word hurled should picture for us. Hurled literally means to cast or, or to throw. It's the same word that's used back in, in, in 1 Samuel when Saul hurls a spear at King David or the soon-to-be King David trying to pin him up against a wall. You get the picture then. As manipulatable or or as controllable as a spear is in the hands of a soldier or as flour and sugar and eggs are in the hands of a baker, so too is every single weather pattern at the will and mercy of God. He can toss in a storm at his will. And in fact, listen to these verses, Psalm 135, Psalm 135, verse 5, listen to what the word of the Lord says. It says, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. And whatever the Lord does, he pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Even, yes, the weather, the forecasts are at the beck and call of God Almighty. That's the effect this verse should have on us. That God saw fit that even in the midst of Jonah's rebellious plan, he just tossed in a storm. Tossed in a a tempest into the mix of Jonah's plan to run away from the call of God. You see this, this tempest that happens upon this little boat on the middle of the Mediterranean. It didn't just happen by accident. It wasn't random. This is something that God foreordained, that God appointed to get Jonah's attention. That's the point, you see. Even in the middle of him running away, of Jonah resisting the call of God on his life, who was still in control of the events as they were unfolding? Not Jonah. God was. And for as smooth sailing as he had been experiencing up to that point, as smooth as his escape plan from the presence of the Lord appeared to be going, God, even at that moment, was working out all things according to his purposes, according that his will would be fulfilled. You see, even with Jonah, God wasn't playing catch up. God doesn't play catch up with people like us who are running away from us. Yes, it might feel like that sometimes that we've somehow gotten ahead of God, but God is always one to a thousand steps ahead of us. And even as we're running from him, 
He has not lost even the tiniest ounce of his control over us and all things. And like Jonah, there are times when God has to manipulate events, toss in some storms in order to get our attention. And even that, even that, as we're going to see in a moment, even that is a sign of God's merciful, loving heart. Guess what God does? He loves you so much that he will do the same for you as he did for Jonah, if necessary. Toss in some storms and get your eyes off of yourself and your best laid plans, off of your uh, uh, selfishness and self-conceit, and let you see that there's one greater one who is in control over all things that's what God is doing right here in this moment for his runaway prophet he's asserting his control the Lord is in order that his runaway prophet might stop his running come on Jonah just relent just give in to what I have called you to do He's trying to get Jonah's attention. And I wonder if we ask ourselves, is that what's happening in our own lives here this morning? Let it be some storm or frustration, some significant moment in your life where it feels like things are not going according to plan. Well, maybe it's because you've been running from what God has called you to do. Maybe it's because you've been running away from his will and his word. God's control over forecasts is also displayed in this second point. God's control over fate. His control is over forecasts. His control is over fate as well as that storm. That storm that is threatening to break apart that little boat on the, on the Mediterranean seas. And he's tossing it in front of Jonah. But he's also tossing it in front of all those who were manning that boat as well. And they too are seeing this horrendous tempest come upon them. And they are starting to get scared. Look at verse 5. It says, then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled, by the way, same word, hurled. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The conditions were so bad, so terrifying in this little moment that these very experienced, very weathered mariners who are, who are familiar with the high seas, they are, are getting scared out of their minds. So much so that they've resorted to throwing stuff over the side. We've got to lighten the ship so we don't capsize. And when that doesn't seem to work, what do they do? They start praying. <laughs> They're praying to All sorts of gods, the gods of the sea or the gods of the weather or the gods of whatever. They're praying to other little pagan deities perhaps, but regardless, they are scared out of their minds that they've resorted to spirituality. And I think, just a little sidebar, this is a fascinating example of human nature. That no matter what your religious background is, however religious you are or aren't, when the chips are down, more often than not, what happens? We always resort to crying out to a higher power. As the Psalms say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and I would add, except when it's a matter of life and death. 
That's often true, is it not? And you can see it here clearly displayed in these sailors. Things are not going according to their plan. They're just making a routine trip to Tarshish. And the storm has caught them by surprise. And yet, nevertheless, while everyone above deck is panicking and running around in a frenzy, trying to make sure that this this boat doesn't sink, Jonah is below deck sleeping. Perhaps like you might on Sunday afternoons, I don't know. (laughs) He's snoozing. And I think this has raised a couple of questions. Jonah's ability to fall fast asleep, literally in the Hebrew, fast asleep means a heavy sleep. He's not just closing his eyes and pretending to sleep. He is in REM. He is fast asleep below deck. And his ability to do so in the middle of a monsoon has raised some questions. Is he... Is he sleeping because he's ignorant of the storm? He doesn't know about it? Or is he just indifferent to it? Is he sleeping because he doesn't know what's going on? Or is he okay if, if, if this storm takes them out? This is fine. The text doesn't say, really. Whatever the case is, this is, I think, Jonah's disregard for the call of God on display Once again, however he's able to get to sleep, what it shows us is he is he's refusing to listen. He's refusing to entertain the call of God on his life, but leave it to God to do whatever it takes to get his attention. If not through his clear, direct word, if not through a storm, leave it for God to put God's own words in the mouth of a pagan sailor. Watch verse 6. I love this little detail. So Jonah's asleep, and it says, verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, The captain rushes down deck, trying to look for more bodies to help them above deck keep the boat afloat. And he comes down, and he finds him sleeping. What do you mean, you sleeper? Notice, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. That we may not perish. I don't think the captain knew what he was perhaps saying. Or perhaps how meaningful it should be to us. But did you notice the captain's word is arise. Is the same word from verse 2. That God gave Jonah initially to arise. And get off your feet. And go to the place that I have appointed to you. I don't think it's by accident, of course. If Jonah won't listen to God's words, he, he's going to have to hear God's words through a disbelieving sailor. And, this, and the captain comes down, just pray. Pray to whoever you pray to, because maybe that'll work. So Jonah's roused from sleep, and he's rushed above deck where the chaos has only gotten worse. The sailors have tried everything. From lightening the ship to invoking all of the help of their deities, all the help of their gods. But nothing was working. Nothing was uh, making anything better. They are still on the brink of capsizing and everyone going down with the ship. And so they determine. They determine that someone on board must have angered one of the gods. 
Someone must have done something against whatever deity they believe in, whatever deity they, be, they pray to. And so it leads them to cast lots. It says, verse 7, and they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Let's determine who is the guilty party, who's the culprit. Casting lots was a common practice in these ancient days and there are lots of theories of what it might have looked like. But whatever the case, what they were essentially doing is playing a game of chance, which they believed, they honestly believed, had a divine outcome. When you were playing the game, or, or uh, casting lots, so to speak, whatever lot was cast, however it came up, it was something that was believed in, it was taken very seriously. And this is not always a negative thing. It's not always some little hokey thing. You, you can read about casting lots, uh, even in that very important chapter in Leviticus 16, where lots are cast to determine which goat is killed first. And there's other places where this is put in a positive light. But regardless of whatever the situation is, here they're casting lots, trying to determine on whose, f- whose fault this is. On whose shoulders do we lay the blame for this storm that's threatening to break apart our ship? So they cast lots, verse 7. And notice, and the lot fell on Jonah. And again, the point is, we have to see here. You have to, you have to track with everything that's been going on so far. This lot didn't just so happen. It wasn't by chance that this lot fell on Jonah. This wasn't just bad luck. He didn't look at the dice, if that's what they were, and say, Oh man, I can't believe it fell on me. Because even this, too, is under the all-knowing control and sovereign jurisdiction of God Almighty. Proverbs 16.33 says quite definitively that the lot is cast into the lamp, but its every decision is from the Lord. So you may cast lots, but every decision is from God himself. So no matter how the die was cast, God was in control of it. And Jonah is exposed. He's revealed to be the culprit, the guilty party. He's the fugitive. And the sailors start immediately battering him with questions. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? What is going on? Who are you? What really have you done? And the sailors aren't worshippers of Yahweh by any stretch of the imagination. But certainly they are fearful of angering any deity, any god. They don't want to get on the bad side of any higher power. And this leads Jonah to own up to what he's done. And that causes the crew to become even more terrified. Notice, and he said, verse 9, to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The crew puts the pieces together after Jonah confesses it was Jonah's God that was behind this storm. And they're basically saying, what in the world, man? What have you done? What have you gotten us into? 
Because this fugitive prophet's rebellion has now put not just his own life in jeopardy, but every single life of every sailor and anyone else who was on that boat, their life is in jeopardy too. And now here, Jonah's been exposed as the fugitive, as the reason why all of this is happening. And now clearly Jonah's escape plan has just blown up in his face. Completely dismantled. All the things that he thought was working out where he just so happened to find a boat in a port to go to the farthest place away possible. All of that is now completely wrecked. And who wrecked it? (laughs) Who dismantled this escape plan? The Lord of all things did it. The Lord who is in control over all things completely dismantled Jonah's plan. And that is often what he does, isn't it? When we pretend as if we are the ones who are in control and he's not, what usually results are plans being sufficiently dismantled by a God who is way more in control than we could ever conceive of. And leave it to the Lord. Leave it to God, the God who still loves this runaway. To exercise even more of his merciful control even in an even greater way for this runaway prophet. Because we see that not only has God's control over forecasts and God is in control over fate. But lastly, number three, you probably knew where I was going. God's control over fish. The panic-stricken crew is growing even more scared by the second. Especially now that Jonah has revealed what he has just put them in. He's put them in a situation where he has angered a God who, according to Jonah's beliefs, made the sea and the dry land. Therefore, that God exercises control over it. They're on that God's bad side. So they ask him how to fix it. Which brings us to the most famous moment, perhaps, in this entire story. And, of course, there's lots of questions abounding here, too. Notice verse 11. Where it says, then they said to him, said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me, hurl, same word as before, by the way, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah insists to these sailors who are wringing their hands at the fact that they are on the brink of death. He insists that the only way for the crew to be saved is that they toss him overboard. They toss him just like the cargo into the sea. Now what's going on here? Is Jonah making a choice To just fully remove himself from the situation and the mission that God has given him? Or is he so moved by love for these sailors that he decides to sacrifice his own life in order to spare theirs? The question is, is Jonah acting selflessly or selfishly? Honestly, the text doesn't really tell us. 
And in fact, I've read multiple ways to explain this in either direction. Some preachers speculate that the storm, this, all of the wind and the rain and all of these events has, has truly and sufficiently aroused Jonah again. It's woken up his faith again. So much so that here in this moment he decides to become their substitute. Very honorable decision on Jonah's part, if that's true. Other preachers say that he's using this circumstance to, uh, to his own advantage since he wanted to die anyways. Chapter number 4, verse 3, of course, is that famous verse where Jonah, later on in the story, cries out, Lord, just please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. So some preachers say that's always been Jonah's heart. And to be honest, both interpretations are just... Educated guesses, since we're not able to see inside his thought process, but for my own part, I think this, I think Jonah's words here to these sailors is nothing but a death wish. He wanted to get as far away as possible from God's call on his life, and what better way to do do that, to remove himself entirely, than by this perfectly planned storm? He's not taking his own life. But he is removing himself entirely from whatever God had wanted him to do. Now Nineveh can't be preached to, so they couldn't be redeemed. So now all of that would go according to what Jonah wanted, that they wouldn't get the word that God had given to him. So he said, toss me overboard. Throw me to the sea. And little did Jonah know that God was already in divine control of a way for him to be rescued and redeemed. But that rescue plan, of course, did not look at all like anything anyone could have ever imagined or predicted. And I think it's fascinating that in verse 13, that uh, before tossing Jonah over the side, they try to row back to the shore. Did you catch that? Verse 13, he tells them, toss me overboard. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. They They didn't want to do that. That seems like a crazy notion. You want us to kill you? But they could not, it says. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay down on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They cry out to Jonah's God. In hopes that that God won't won't hold them responsible for what they're about to do. Tossing a life of a person over the side to certain death. They don't take that lightly. The thought of doing that. But as soon as they do, the storm stops. And everything goes quiet. Notice verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, these sailors have been drenched in fear this entire scene. And yet, at the moment it says here, when everything goes quiet, after everything was so noisy and stormy and almost threatening to break them up, here, as soon as Jonah hits the water, everything goes back to stillness. And now they are even more scared than ever before. As it says, they were exceedingly afraid. 
And yet no sooner had Jonah begun to tread water than he found himself in the belly of a fish. Verse 17. And the Lord, wonderful word, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Appointed, that is, assigned or prepared. Just like the weather and the lots. This Fish was under the sovereign jurisdiction of Yahweh, of God Almighty. He had prepared this specifically for his runaway prophet. Who thought, yet again, that he could control his own life. Even to the point of, ma- of removing his life entirely. Even God says, nope, not on my watch. God's control. Knows no bounds. And there is never a moment when he is not in control. Every occurrence, every occasion of our lives is under his sovereign, merciful superintendence. His control over all things is felt. Even when it feels like he's not in control, he is. Again, to quote that theologian, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, mine. The weather is his, the lots are his, the fish is his, it's all his, including you and me. Psalm 95, another wonderful passage from the Psalms, asserts this so clearly. Psalm 95, verse 3, write it down, declare his... Uh, Psalm 95 verse 3. For the Lord is great. Is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. It's all his. And even as Jonah was running. What does God do? He asserts His sovereign control over all things to bring about his divine purposes. This is what he did for Jonah. But I'd like to tell you this morning, this is exactly what he's done for the whole world too. You see, as I was reflecting on this passage, I could not help but see... The parallels between the control of God that is evidence in every single facet of the story. From the chaos of the wind to the chaos of the lots to the surprise of the fish that swallows Jonah whole. I cannot help but see all of that control being evidence again and again and again. And connect it to the control of God that's displayed on the cross. And maybe you've never thought about that like that before. That God is in control of a, of a cross that is cruci- on which he's being crucified. But the fact of the matter is, in both cases, God was in complete control the entire time. Even as the torrential wind and the rain is threatening to take the life of God's prophet, God's control, as we've just seen, was at work in every single phase. And even as the rowdy mob was hurling their worst sorts of jabs and ridicules at the naked and mutilated body of the Son of God, what is occurring? God's merciful control was working all things out to bring about redemption for every single human being, for the whole world, for you and for me. 
See, that's the good news, my friends. The good news is the amazing, uncanny announcement that even when everything appeared to be falling apart, Christ was putting it back together. And this is why with nails through his hands and a spear pegging him to the cross, what does Christ say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's in control. Even of that moment too. Even of that moment when he's being crucified and he's dying. He's in control of every single second. And like Jonah. Even when we're running from God as his enemies. What is God doing? He's already cooking up a way for us to be rescued and redeemed. And just, again, like Jonah, that rescue plan that God was cooking up, that he was in complete control of the whole time, it didn't look like anything anyone could have ever predicted. It looked like a cross. It looked like defeat. It looked like death. And even through all of that, what is occurring? The cruelty of the cross The wretchedness of that horrible scene with people spitting and beating our Lord and and hitting him in the face and mocking him and his identity and cursing him to his face. What is occurring? God's gracious control where he says in John chapter 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is what God has done for us sinners. Sinners and saints, we can rejoice in the fact that even when it looked like chaos and the hope of all the nations was dying, he was in control of how the hope of the nations would be saved. See, that's what God does. The goodness of God, yes, comes running after us. For Jonah and for every runaway saint, for every fugitive sinner, for you and for me, the merciful God, the merciful control of God Almighty chases us down. One of my favorite preachers, Horatius Bonar from the 1900s in Scotland, he said this, quote, from first to last, God pursues the sinner, even as he flies from him. He pursues him, not in hatred, but in love. Pursues him not to destroy, but to pardon and to save. Like Jonah, when we run from God, God runs after us. And he asserts his control over all things, forecasts and fate and even fish if it need be, in order to get our attention to see that we cannot wiggle our way out of his goodness. My friend, if you believe in Jesus but you've been running from what he has called you to do, there is no place on earth where you can escape the goodness of God. It'll keep chasing you down. It'll keep following you. you will, your plans will continue to be upset and interrupted and always never go according to your plans so long as you're running from his. Sinner, if you think you're making it on your own, 
And you think that God is judging you because there's constant storm after storm, frustration after frustration. Maybe, friend, he's trying to get your attention to see that he is the merciful God who is waiting to embrace you as his son or daughter. That's this God. The God of Jonah chases after rebels. The God of Jonah chases after runaways. The God of Jonah chases after sinners. He chases after you and me. And there's no way he's going to let you go. There's no place that he will not go to get your attention. Even if it means being pegged to a tree. That's what God has done for you, my friends. As we sung about, he took death in his hand and arrested it. You get that picture? Like the the storm that he can control and manipulate, that he can hurl at his will. Death is a thing that he can grab by his hand. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that one day he's going to stomp on the neck of death for good. That's this God. That's how much control he has. And that's how much mercy is busting at the seams of his heart for you to be embraced in. My friends, stop your running. There's a God who's running after you. There's a God who's chasing you down to see that he is ready to welcome you in his arms. Let us pray.